Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. That was beautiful. Good morning. How are you? We become like what we behold. It's just a principle of life. It's just the way God made us. Whether we look at, you know, a a, a new fad that we are embracing, whether it's a weight that we want to lose or whether it's a career that we're chasing or whether it's the athlete or musician that we want to become, we become like what we behold. This is just part of God's design for humanity. We were made that way. And ultimately, we were made to behold God, to image God. In fact, in the first chapter of Genesis, it says that we bear God's image. We, it doesn't mean that we're like Him in a sense that we, He has arms and legs and He looks like us or He has hair and eyes, although we see Jesus in His incarnation. But what that means in the beginning of the Bible is that, that we are to reflect God, to, in a sense, become like Him, as we behold Him, to bear witness to Him. But the problem is, is that sin has entered into humanity and has turned that upside down. And now instead of beholding our Creator, we behold creation. And we want to become like it. And now, instead of reflecting God's glory, mankind in sin has become really a pathetic, hollow version of itself. And our text this morning... Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, I think is medicine for that disease. So open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3 as we're working through Hebrews. Praise God for Wendula Mbewe's message last week out of Philippians. If you missed it, please go listen to it. It's on the internet, on our, uh, what is it called, a website, I think is what we have. (laughs) Go to it, listen to it. It was wonderful. But we're back in Hebrews this morning. Let me read the text, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Remember, this is a letter, really a sermon, written by the preacher of Hebrews to a group of Jewish Christians in Rome in the first century, ethnically Jews. They've converted to Christ. They're trusting in the Messiah. And they are, because of persecution, tempted to fall back, to go back into Judaism, to go back to the Old Covenant. And so the argument, really, of Hebrews, we could summarize by saying, Don't go back, hold fast, draw near to Jesus. He is better than anything that has come before. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the law. He's better than the priesthood. He's better than the sacrifices. He's better than the old covenant. And here in chapter 3, he begins that part of the argument where he says he's better than Moses. So let me read Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling... Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant 
to testify to the things that were spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Thank you for this morning, for March 12th, 2023. Thank you for an extra hour of daylight. Thank you for rain that waters the earth. May it be a symbol of your word that comes to water the soil of our hearts. May it not return void. Help us to see Jesus this morning. And help me serve these people in your word today for your glory and our good. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the sermon has two parts. First is explanation. Second is application. I want to explain this text. And we're going to work our way quickly through these six verses. And I think the explanation of this text can sort of be hung on an outline. There's a call, there's a comparison, and there's a condition. A call, a comparison, a condition, and then we're going to spend the balance of our time applying this. What does this mean to us? What is this old, what is this ancient text that makes this comparison between Jesus and Moses? What on earth would that have to do with us? First, I want us to notice this call. I think this is the point of this text. In fact, I think it's the, in a sense, it's the point of the whole letter of Hebrews. Look again at verses 1 and 2. The writer says, the preacher of Hebrews says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider, that's the word, consider, that's the call, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. That's God appointing the Son, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. So the preacher of Hebrews here calls us, he calls his readers to consider Jesus. And I want to make sure we understand what this word consider means, because I think everything hinges on us understanding what he's saying with this word. In English, this word can can sometimes take a kind of lighter sort of implication. It's kind of like you're picking out a pair of shoes, and the person says, Have you considered the blue pair? Or have you considered these? And when you get old and your feet hurt, when you don't have a good pair of shoes, that's an important consideration. Can I get an amen for everybody that's not under the age of 50? But that's not the sense here of this word consider. It's not just something to think about. The sense of the word is much richer. It it means to fix your thoughts on Jesus, to give careful consideration. A better word might be, in some translations, translated this way, to contemplate deeply, to look at in a reflective manner, to give your most intentional focus to Jesus. That's the sense. That's what the preacher of Hebrews is calling his audience to do, not just to, oh, if you get around to it, consider this or think about this. No, he's saying, gaze on, contemplate, think carefully about Jesus. But notice also in this call how he describes the people that he's calling to consider Jesus, how he describes Christians. He calls them holy brothers. And then he says about these people, and this is Christians, so if it applies to the Christians in the first century, it applies to Christians through the ages. He calls them holy brothers and those who share in a heavenly 
calling. What a phrase. What a way to describe your audience. I have a pastor acquaintance kind of slash friend in California. And um, I, I notice uh, on social media and, and places and, and emails to some of the people kind of in our little pastoral network, he will refer to the people in his church as Saint whatever, Saint Bob or Saint Joe or Saint Susie or Saint Mary or whatever. And, and he refers to himself by that, by that phrase as well. He calls himself saint. I won't mention his name. He calls himself saint whatever. And honestly, honestly, if I'm, if I'm just being real with you here, when I, when I first saw him doing this a few years ago, I, I thought it was a tad cheesy. But, but as I've thought about it more over the years, I'm, I'm chastened by it as well because I know what he's doing. This brother's theology is not sort of slipping into some strange Catholic veneration of, of people. That's not what he's doing. He is, he is, I think, using, and he's wanting to bolster his congregation's image of themselves in Christ to understand the implications of all that Christ has done for them. And he's wanting them to know this is who we are. That's what's going on here in the opening lines of Hebrews 3. He's calling us his audience, believers, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. What are we to make of this? I think what we're to make of it is just that the truest thing about a believer is their status in God as a result of what Christ has done. Look at the first verse or first word of chapter 3. He says, therefore. So in other words, he's saying what I'm about to say is an implication of what I have just previously said. And what he just previously said in Hebrews chapter 2 verses 10 through 18 are some of the most richest words in all of the Bible that Jesus has propitiated. He's absorbed. He's satisfied the wrath of God for his people. And he's turned it into favor. And because of that, he's not ashamed to call Weak sinners who have nothing to commend themselves to God other than Christ's righteousness. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. And so he calls people like us. Do you feel holy? Do you feel like you're sharing a partaker of the heavenly calling this morning? Well, if you are in Christ, regardless of how you subjectively feel about yourself, that is the truest thing about you right now. Take note of this, dear one. Preach this to yourself until you believe it and fill your life with people who believe this as well. And apply this, this is just a side note, apply this to other believers in your life because if it's true of you, it's true of everyone else in Christ. And if we do this, if we would just have, the, I mean, come on, he's just, he's, just, he's just sort of opening up his argument here and it's rich with theology. And if we would understand that we are holy and that we share in the heavenly calling, it would have a massive impact on our lives. Richard Sibbs, one of my favorite Puritans, a preacher back in the 1600s in England, he wrote a, a phenomenal book called The Bruised Reed, and he said this. He said that the Holy Ghost, I love this, the Holy Ghost is content to dwell in smoky and offensive souls. Oh, that the Spirit would breathe in us that same merciful disposition. In other words, the Holy Spirit deals in really hard-to-love people, which on some level, it's all of us. <laughs> and so he's saying, oh, that the Spirit would breathe in us that same heavenly disposition. 
Friends, the world trains us. The world makes money on us being mad at each other and breaking into factions. And this word is that if someone is in Christ, they are holy and they, they share in the heavenly calling and therefore they are a brother or sister that should be loved. But notice not also how he describes Christians. Much more importantly, notice how he describes Christ. What he says about Jesus, he says that he is the apostle and high priest of our confession. That's verse 1. And then in verse 2, he says he was faithful to him who appointed him. This is really interesting because this is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is actually called an apostle. We're much more familiar with that term when it comes to Jesus' apostles, the twelve that were sent out by Jesus. And then Paul, later on, who becomes an apostle in Acts chapter 9 upon his conversion when Jesus returns from heaven and the qualifications for the apostles, this office of apostle, capital A, is to be one of these 12 followers of Jesus that he sent out and Paul, and they were commissioned by God to be his messengers. In fact, that's what the word apostle means. It's an envoy. It's a messenger. And these men become the ones through whom the New Testament is written. So every letter in the New Testament, all 27 books, were either written by an apostle or through the hand of the apostle, through one of his ministry associate. The only one that we don't really, the only book in the Bible, the only letter in the New Testament that we're not certain of the authorship is in fact Hebrews itself. And we talked about that in the first week that we started this series on Hebrews. The point is, is that here, in Hebrews 3, the writer is calling Jesus an apostle, which is unique. So what's that mean? It means that God has sent Jesus to us. But he's not just an apostle from God to us. He's our high priest from us to God. Notice that. And there's this, there's this two directions here that, that's described in his, in his description of Jesus. He's, he's God's representative to us. And he's our representative to God. It makes me think of that verse, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And so he's saying, consider, who are you to consider? This one, the one that became a, a man, God himself, who then turns around and represents you to God. So in the middle of these two descriptions of a Christian and of Jesus, here's the point of this text. He calls believers to consider, to stop for a moment and to think carefully about Jesus. And in the context of what's going on in the first century church in Rome, these Hebrew Christians, is he's saying, don't go back to the old covenant. Don't go back to relying on the law for your right standing with God. Don't go back to Moses, who is the representation of this old covenant. Well, Okay, you say, I got you, Brad. That seems clear enough. But what does this have to do with us? Because I doubt that many of you woke up this morning tempted to worship Moses. Or I doubt that many of you tempted to obey all of the Old Testament law, all of the dietary laws and the sacrificial laws and all of that. In fact, I think some of you probably went the other way. You know, it says we can't eat. In the Old Testament, you can't eat pork. I think some of you probably went the other way and you said, honey, make some more bacon. So how does this apply to us? We're not necessarily in our context tempted to go back to Moses. How does this apply to us? Well, we'll get to that in a second. But before we do that, we need to understand the comparison that he's making. So look again at the text, verses 3 through 6. He says, for Jesus has been 
counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So it's kind of a clear argument there. He's just saying that the house is glorious, but the one who built it is far more glorious. For every house, verse 4, is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So I think this is just a straightforward illustration, and it's a really, I think, pretty easy logical argument to follow. The builder of a house deserves more credit, more glory, more honor than the house itself, and certainly more than the servants of the house, and that's the comparison that the preacher of Hebrews is making. And then he says something really, I think, just important uh, that I want to highlight, although I don't think it's central to the argument. He just sort of, is in, actually it's in parentheses in verse 4. He says, every house is built by someone, and God, but the builder of all things, is God. Just a quick side note. Brothers and sisters, especially you young people, know this no matter what social media or some vain person on TikTok tells you or what some curriculum in whatever school you go to tells you, you were made by God especially and you were made for Him. He made you, listen to me now, He made you a boy or a young man and He made you or He made you a girl to grow into a young woman and that is that is a wonderful thing. It is a wonderful thing to be a boy. It is a wonderful thing to be a girl. And there are only two. And God in His wisdom has given you what He wanted you to be. A boy or a girl. A man or a woman. And, and, but it's deeper than that, He gave you gifts and he gave you limitations all for his good and wise purposes he made you the way you are he he made you tall or he made you short for his good purposes he made you he made you athletic or he made you not be able to walk and chew gum at the same time for his good purposes. He caused you to be born into the family that you were born in. He gave you parents that were imperfect. He caused you to be born on that side of the tracks and that home and that neighborhood and that country and that state. And he did it all for his glory and your good. And he, he made you good at that and not so good at that. And he maybe even put, in fact, not maybe, he definitely did, he puts challenges and obstacles and limitations in your life not so that you would be mad at him because he didn't give you what he gave somebody else, but that you would not look at yourself, that you would not behold horizontally creation and worship it and want to be like somebody else, but that you would behold him and become like him and reflect him. And in, even in your limitations, you may be poised to reflect him in a greater way than your friends who have all of those gifts that you're jealous of. And to the gifted, 
So, so to, to, to those of us who think, you know, man, I, I can't even tie my shoes. I got struggles, man. Why has God done this? He's done it for your good and his wise purposes. That may, the struggle that you're going through may be the sweet kiss of God on your life because it's the very thing that he will use over the course of your life to cause you to hold on to him. And a warning on the flip side to those that in God's mysterious providence seems to have given at least more earthly temporary gifts. He's made you tall and handsome and given you white teeth. And you don't even need a filter on your picture. And you know how to stand. When the camera comes, you just know you know how to, you know how to stand when they take the picture. And he's made you smart. And he caused you to be born in a good family. And he's given you privileges. And you're a good athlete. And you're, good, you're a good musician. You've got a good voice. And everybody wants to be around you. Okay, okay, praise God. But beware. 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 That can be a very dangerous thing. Because you can, you can, you can behold that. And then you become, you start to become like the world around you. And it eats your soul. It eats your soul. Okay, back to Moses. Moses was, he was wonderful. But even Moses was merely a servant in God's house. It's hard to overstate the importance of Moses in the Old Testament, God's plan. He led Israel out of Egyptian captivity. He was the great deliverer. God gave him the law. He spoke to Moses face to face on Mount Sinai. And then the text says that Moses pointed us to Christ. He testified of things to come later. But the argument is, the point the preacher is making, is that Christ is far better than Moses. Moses was just a servant in the house. Christ is the son over the house. So don't miss the clear point before we move on. Jesus is greater than Moses. And okay, you're saying, okay, Brad, I, I get that. I understand that. But again, what does this have to do with us? Okay, I know you keep asking. <laughs> That's coming. And then thirdly, the condition here, the last part of verse six. It says, the preacher says, we are his house. If indeed, if, that word if indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now, the statement, we are his house, what a statement. We, we, he's talking to Christians, these same people that he calls holy, that share, that partake in the heavenly calling. We are his house. This, I think, is exactly the sentiment, the point that Paul is making in Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to this beautiful text, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. He says, so then, as a consequence of what Christ has done to make you go from death to life in Christ, he's made you alive in Christ, Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is how he's describing the church. It's the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, so again, there's this house symbol, this house analogy, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, so what's the house of the Lord? I think 
We use that phrase to describe the building. Isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord today? And I think that's a fine thing to say. It's an okay thing to say. As long as we realize that biblically speaking, the house of the Lord is not the building, it's the people. The Christians, the, the, the saints, the, the ones that partake in the, the heavenly calling, we are the Lord's house. So just one, click, one quick implication. We should prioritize people, not buildings. Yes, we need a building to gather together, and I am grateful for this building, even when the air conditioning turns on in the middle of my sermon, and I see all of you look up. <laughs> But let's be aware of the subtle drift that can sneak into a church like ours that has means and has resources and has assets. We can turn inward on ourselves and we can think that we need to spend all of our time making our place that we gather for a few hours through the week pleasurable and comfortable for us. And on some level, there's a stewardship to that. But friends, know this. There can be more fruitful ministry going on in a poor village, in a shack, than in a megachurch with a campus full of beautiful buildings. So let's just keep our priorities straight. Yeah, let's keep the lights on. Let's, you know, let's, let's do our best to do all things with excellence. But let's not waste kingdom resources on our comfort and pleasure. And, and I think that's, that's an implication of how he describes it. We are his house. If, notice in the condition, here's the condition, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now what are we to make of this condition, this word if? That's an important word, if. And all throughout Hebrews, in fact Hebrews is sort of famous for these warning passages, these passages that seem to attach a condition of perseverance onto the life of a Christian that has been the fodder for much theological debate through the centuries. Now, we're going to get into this several times as we work through Hebrews. Hebrews, later on next week, in fact, verses 12 through 14, there's this sense, this warning. It's in Hebrews 6 and 10 and other places. This, this What's going on with this condition is, here's the issue, Is the preacher of Hebrews saying, if we don't endure to the end, if we don't hold on to Christ, if we don't hold fast our confidence and our boasting, is he saying that we then could lose our salvation or lose our status as children of God? Is that what he's saying? Is that the condition there? And as we work through Hebrews, I think the answer will bear out, and I hope to make the good case for no. I don't think that's what he's saying. I believe here he is merely saying that true believers, if they are true believers, a consequence, a necessity of their lives will be that they will indeed persevere to the end. And that will be evident by whether they hold on to Christ until the end. So we might say it this way. If a person who confesses Christ endures, They are a true believer. If a person who confesses Christ ultimately does not endure, they were not and never were a true believer. And we're going to make this point 
in the subsequent weeks is that one of the ways that God actually keeps his true believers is through the means of warning. So it's like children. I've used this analogy many, many times over the years that we've been at church. It's like children playing in the front yard and the father says to the children, do not run out into that busy street. If you run out into the street and a car comes by and you get hit by it, you will surely die. And that is a real warning. But he's a good father and he will not let it happen. So if his children venture out in their foolishness to the close to the edge of the curb, the father is a good father and he will guarantee their safety. And so he will jump up off the porch and he will go snatch them and he will bring them back to safety. But one of the one of the means that he uses to actually do that is the verbal warning that they actually need to heed. And so while I do not think that Christians can lose their salvation, I do think that all Christians need to heed this warning if, if we are his people, if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting until the end. But what is our confidence? It's Christ. It's not just our confidence in ourselves and our holding. Our confidence is in his holding on to us. Our confidence is in Christ. I can't wait to get to Hebrews chapter 4. The end of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, let me read it. And if you're going to memorize anything in Hebrews, these verses would be a wonderful option. This is what he says. Since therefore, notice the connection to what he says here in our text in Hebrews 3, this confidence. Since then, we have a great high priest who's Pass through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We're holding fast to what we believe about what Jesus has done for us. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may find mercy we may find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we're holding fast. We, we're, we're boasting in the Lord. We're putting our hope in Him. We're putting our hope that He will follow through with what He said He will do. And why is this, why is this so important? Why is hope so important in God's plan? Why doesn't God just zap us and bring us to heaven? Because it magnifies God as he leaves us here to put on display the hope that we have in him for eternity, it puts on display that God and his promises and his word is better than anything that this world has to offer. It lifts our eyes to the future and it points us to the world to come. Okay, that's the explanation of this text. What, what's the application? What does this have to do with us? Because Brad, I did not, I haven't really thought about Moses much at all this week. And I wasn't thinking, I wasn't wondering whether or not he was better than Jesus. And I ate a bunch of bacon this morning. So what does this have to do with us? How does this, how does this apply to us? Most of us, in fact none of us, are in the same situation that first century Jewish Christians were in Rome. We are not struggling with whether or not to go back to Judaism. So what does this passage say to us? We may not be tempted to go back to Judaism, but oh, how desperately we need this word because we are the most distracted generation. We are the most hurried and the most frazzled in the history of mankind. 
And we need to hear this call to consider, to think carefully about Jesus. I think maybe the biggest threat, this is just my speculation, we could say a lot of things, maybe the biggest threat to the church today, I don't think it's who's going to be elected president or who is president. I don't think it's even necessarily the drift of our culture or some social theory or woke politics or liberal theology, although I think all of those things are enemies of the gospel and I care deeply about who is the president and who will be the president. I think all of those things are really, really important. But maybe, maybe the biggest threat to the church is not any of those things horizontally, but the greatest threat may very, very well be that so little of the church has really taken the time to consider and carefully look at and know and rest in and stare carefully at Jesus so that they, so that we would become more like him. Maybe that's the biggest threat, the lack of the holiness and the sanctification of the church. We look, we behold, we become like what we behold. And what's the result? We look, we're not looking to Moses, we're not looking to the law for a right standing, but we are looking all around us. We're looking horizontally. We're looking, we're looking for our right standing. We're looking for our justification. And we're looking for it everywhere but up. It reminds me of that song, Don't Look It Up. Don't Look It Up, Young People. It was a terrible song. But the people in my generation and older will know, remember that song, Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places? That's the condition of the human soul. And we're longing for vindication. We long for it, even after we're believers, and we drift from looking to Jesus for it, and we will look elsewhere. That's what's going on in the first century. These Christians are feeling pressure, and they are tempted to relieve the pressure by looking somewhere other than Jesus, by doing something other than holding on and enduring what the sovereign God has called them to do. So for us, it's not the law of Moses that we're tempted to go to, but the law of this broken world. Something, anything that will give us some sort of soothing from the pain we feel. This is where you'll be happy. This is how you'll be fulfilled. This is what will make you fully realize. But the problem is, is it never satisfies. It only turns us into pathetic versions of ourselves. And again, the principle is true. We become like what we behold. And so you see, this is a word for the ages. This is a word for the church. Consider Jesus. Think carefully about him. This call is to us. We're not tempted to go back to the law. We're not tempted to go back to Judaism, but we are tempted to find our justification, to find, to signal that the world, we just want the world to love us. And so we look for it anywhere else but Christ. And the call is to us, just like it was to these first century Christians, consider Jesus. Think carefully about him. Look at him. Stop looking at your phone for half of a second and look at Jesus. That's what the writer is saying to us. Will you linger with Jesus? Will you wait 
on him. We don't, this is the spiritual battle, friends. We don't know how to wait. We're so impatient. We scroll. We turn channels. We, 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 we drive by fast food restaurants. And if there's more than 10 cars in the line, we will drive to the other side of the city to go to another Chick-fil-A. And, and, but the time that we wasted, we could have just stayed in line because we hate to wait. And friends, we, we are like lab rats that have been given stimulants and we run from one side of the cage to the other looking for vindication. And the call, the call of the preacher of Hebrews is stop for a second and look and consider and stare carefully at Jesus. Stop looking at your watch. Stop waiting for the next thing. Stop rushing from this to that and sit with Jesus for a while. I know that might seem mystical to you. Uh, Brad, I thought we were about doctrine. Give me some systematic theology. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, but that theology should push you in to the face of Jesus, whom you see, who you behold, and who when you behold him, you will be like him. What good is theology and Bible studies and songs and sermons if they don't do something in our life and bring us to Jesus so that we look at him and say, Jesus, I want to think carefully about who you are and how good you are and how satisfying you are. And that, sitting with Jesus, worshiping Jesus, no agenda, love, I love you, Jesus, is the need of every soul. Psalm 130, let me end with this. Listen to this, I love this. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. I think we've stared long enough. We know, we, man, we need mercy. Lord, I run from thing to thing. I'm looking, for, I'm looking for vindication in this, in that. Verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. Verse 5, listen to this. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him there is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Will we wait on Jesus? Will we look at him? Will we slow down for more than just a few seconds? Will we, will we stop trying to be so efficient in everything that we do? Will we put down our calendars? Will we, will we go home today and will we, will we, will we open up? Will we spend time in prayer? Will we wake up tomorrow morning and will we seek his face? Will we consider Jesus? Will, or will we scurry off to all these things that we, we behold and become like. Friends, here's, here's the issue. Many of us just want a formula. We just want a formula. Just, Brad, give me a few steps. Let me, let me buy the latest devotional, little thing, little Brad, whatever, and let me just plug and play the Christian life. It's The Christian life is not a math equation. But we've been trained to make everything functional and pragmatic and when we don't get it from Jesus, we run back to our phones. We run back to our old covenant. We run back to the old covenant that we've made with our souls. And we stare at it and we become like it. Beloved, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, let's 
consider Jesus. Let's consider him. And what better way to do that than coming to the Lord's table? We're going to take this bread. It represents his broken body for you, and the cup represents his spilled blood for you. And as we consider, as we look at Jesus, friends, consider this. He died for you. There's something much stronger going on in you if you're a Christian than anything you can imagine. You are his, and he is yours. He has promised to bring you all the way home. And by looking at that and meditating on that and preaching that gospel to yourself and believing that and surrounding yourself with people who do that, that will bear fruit in your life. So let's, let's, let's consider Jesus as we come to this table. If you're, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer, I'm really glad that you're here. I pray that maybe you are in the process of becoming a Christian. But if you're not a believer, if you're not trusting in Jesus, if your hope is not in him, you shouldn't, you shouldn't come and receive the bread and the cup because this is something that Christians are doing. And I don't, I don't want you to say something that you don't yet believe. I don't want you to do something that symbolizes something that you don't yet believe. But if you're a Christian, you're trusting in Christ. This meal is for you. And don't let it be tradition. As Robert's reading the scripture, as we're singing the songs, and as we're taking, let's think carefully about Jesus and who we are in light of who Jesus is and what that means for our hope and our future. Lord, may we feast on this table. May we consider Jesus. May you use this passage to, to be like ammonia in our spiritual nostrils to wake us up and cause us to look at Jesus afresh. And I pray that you do it in Jesus' name. Amen.